0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphagee to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you...
1: Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome to that and Mike Stroh. My name is Mike Trabe and I'm also named Mike to be redundant. Um, one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship, and very grateful that you've joined us this morning for worship. Thank you to the music team. I love the songs that we play this year. Uh, thanks to our scripture reader, Gage. Uh, your your parents must be proud. Um, <laughs> We promise to return you to them one day when we find out who they are. Just kidding. It's my son and um, all of his good qualities come from his mom. Well, it's Palm Sunday. And this morning we continue in our sermon series on the gospel of Matthew. But we're shifting forward, if you will, in time from where we were last Sunday where we heard Alan preach uh, from Matthew's gospel in chapters 9 and 10, we're shifting forward in time and in the narrative to align Matthew's account of Jesus and his triumphal entry with this, Palm Sunday. And it's not unlike the way that Matthew employs this narrative method of time shift as as he's presented his gospel. Each of the gospel writers recounting their Stories of their life and the words and the works of Jesus uh, don't necessarily present it in a perfect chronological order, and Matthew certainly has not. But they're presenting their perspective by shifting back and forth in time instead of proceeding through this strict chronological sequence. Well, as I was preparing for today, I realized I preached the same sermon, not the one I'm preaching, but I preached on Palm Sunday. Last year, so either I did a good job or this is my remediation. Nobody's actually told me that very clearly, but I, I preached the sermon last year from the perspective of those who were witnesses to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, from the perspective of what they saw and, and what their expectations were and what was their reaction. And we were challenged With the question to determine who is our king, you see, because their expectations of who Jesus was and what their Messiah would look like was across the spectrum, not unlike as it is today, perhaps, for those of us who follow Jesus and long for the kingdom. You see, all of Israel longed to return to the glory days under their greatest ruler, King David. Some Jews were expecting a a prophet like Moses, we can see from the scriptures. Others expected the Messiah to be a a military figure who would make his grand entrance into Jerusalem, fight the Romans, and drive them out. That certainly was the predominant view of the day in Jesus' time as this expectation of the Messiah had shifted over time throughout the history of Israel. They wanted a king who would make a grand entrance and overthrow the power that was subduing Israel. Well, grand entrances either match or mismatch our expectations, depending on the perspective that you as the observer bring to the situation. But it's not lost on me that all of Jesus' life and ministry was, in a sense, a series of grand entrances. The virgin birth, the unrolling of the scroll in the synagogue as he proclaimed himself to be the one that Isaiah prophesied about. And on and on in varying degrees of grandeur, along with a series of very graceful exits. As we look at Matthew's gospel, if we try to summarize all the way up to this point in chapter 21, right? Jesus has explained to Israel what kingdom character and calling look like in the Sermon on the Mount. And after that, as he proceeds into his Galilean ministry, he's doing all of the things that a Messiah would be expected to do. All of the things that the scriptures foretold of the Messiah, that the blind would see, that the deaf would hear, that the mute would speak that the lame would walk, that the dead would be raised. And all along, performing these things and and the things that he said, there was a, a variety of reactions to this. Is he who he claims to be? Some were absolutely certain. Others couldn't decide. And others were, as we know, gravely offended or threatened by the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah and he was doing these things. Well, his triumphal entry is, is but an opening scene of the beginning of a week in which all the strands, all the varied strands of this plot begin to be drawn together. And we see in verse 10 of our scripture today that, that it gives us this sense that this image of turmoil, Upon Jesus' arrival on this donkey. There's this mixture of excitement and uproar and anxiety and apprehension. Due to the nature of his grand entrance. It tells us in verse 11 that people ask, who is this? All of the city is in an uproar. And they're asking, who is this? But curiously, we we see the response of those who were perhaps following Jesus their their answer is not this this is our messiah this is our king that's not their answer their answer is this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee it's this reality the expectation mismatch that that will ultimately cause their cries to shift from hosanna which is literally this Exclamation of adoration! It means, "Lord, save us now!" I, you are our savior. Do your messiah thing. It will shift from that to this conviction that he should be crucified. Crucify him. Well, this Palm Sunday, I hope we can shift our perspective, not from the perspective of how did people see Jesus and what was their Reaction to him, but, but to see it from the perspective of Christ and what he was doing in his triumphal entry in light of his mission and his calling. You see, Jesus' triumphal entry not only heralds the arrival of Israel's Messiah, the King of the Jews, but, but it sets up what will become a confrontation between King Herod and the Jewish high priest Caiaphas and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and Jesus, which will play out for the remainder of the events of this Holy Week that we celebrate as as the Triduum, three sacred days, the Passion of of the Christ. And what I hope we can see this morning, and really the the thrust of of what I hope to present to you, is that this this grand entrance of Jesus. Sets up for us two sides, if you will, of the, the coin of the realm. I might be showing my age using that term. The coin of the realm, the, the monetary instrument that, that is prevalent in the air. But in this case, I'm talking about the thing that has the greatest influence. You see, the coin of the realm in the kingdom of God is genuine discipleship. On the one side of this coin, it looks like following Jesus to our own Jerusalem. It's the place where we face the worldly systems which so easily dominate our lives and our hearts and our minds. The things that hold sway over us, that, that draw us further away from faithfulness to God and, and living out our calling. And on the other side of this coin that is genuine discipleship, looks like facing death and embracing the resurrection. These are the things that Jesus was doing as he made his triumphal entry. These are the two themes of Holy Week. They're the the two themes of Lent and the Christian life. And so this morning, my hope is that we can grow to see Jesus' triumphal entry as a model for how we can enter more fully into our own individual and corporate sense of genuine discipleship. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we are just so grateful that you sent your Son to earth to fulfill his mission. And Lord Jesus, we we come to you humbly this morning with gratitude for who you are and what you've accomplished for us and what it is that you are accomplishing in us. Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ in our midst this morning, to see ourselves in light of who you are and, and to, to continue to be transforming into who you've called us to be. Amen. Well, when we look at the first five verses of our scripture this morning, um, we see that Jesus has arrived at the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, And he has set about to deliberately enact this 500-year prophecy of Zechariah that we heard this morning in our our call to worship. And as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem from the east at the end of a a journey from Galilee, he tells two of his disciples to to go to the next village and to get him a colt. They will find there one that's never been ridden. That is a a young colt. The foal of a donkey. Jesus is deliberately setting about to make his grand entrance, if you will. Now, grand entrances are not really unfamiliar to us, right? We see them all the time. In the theater, uh, the grand entrance is actually a a technique when a character enters the scene, behaving in a certain way to immediately give you a sense of, of who this character is and what they're about. We see other grand entrances from entertainers, I, I think of the red carpet on in award shows, professional athletes busting through the paper at the high school version of the Super Bowl or whatever, you know, running through the tunnel. Or we can combine athletes and actors and, and think look at pro wrestlers, right? Um masters of the grand entrance. I'm not a pro wrestling fan, so but But my point here is to say that we have to recognize that that grand entrances or how we enter a situation or an interaction um, can control a situation. It can exert power. This influence that an entrance we make into a meeting, into a job interview, into um, an interaction with someone sets the tone for the relationship. The saying goes, you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So Jesus is set about preparing for his grand entrance. Well on the opposite side of the city, we could imagine that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Idumea, Judea and Samaria, had likely made his own grand entrance into Jerusalem. We we can't know for certain the biblical narrative does not give an account of Pilate coming into the city in this week, but we know from the historical writings of Philo and Josephus that Pilate normally made his residence in the Herodian palace in Caesarea off to the west, but, but we know that his practice was to come and take up residence in Jerusalem during Jewish festivals. For the purpose of suppressing uprisings that may occur, and and some had occurred in the past before this time. And since Passover is this, in a sense, this celebration of, of Jewish liberation from foreign domination, it's reasonable to assume that Pilate would have made a grand entrance into Jerusalem. He'd made a number of trips to Jerusalem in his time as governor to wield his authority and power and to confront these challenges or threats to the authority of of his God, Rome and Caesar. We know from the historical writings that he was characterized, and I'm quoting Philo here, a man of very inflexible disposition and very merciless as well as very obstinate. Well, Jesus, in his life and ministry, he's taken multiple trips to Jerusalem, too. We see these in the narrative. But on this occasion, Jesus knows. He understands full well what confrontation, what outcome awaits him. Luke's gospel says he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's been foretelling his death. To his disciples. Jesus knows full well. What he faces. On. This trip. To Jerusalem. And so Jesus in preparing his grand entrance. Doesn't prepare for a power. Encounter if you will. With the forces of the world and the will at work. That seek to thwart the will of God. Jesus is preparing for a gospel confrontation with the world's mightiest power. Well, coming from Caesarea in the West, one can assume that that Pilate would have entered the city on its western side riding a war horse at the head of imperial cavalry followed by a number of foot soldiers of the Roman legions. You can imagine the clatter, the sound of multiple horses in their hooves, the marching of feet and weapons and banners on display. We see modern examples. Think, think North Korea minus the missiles driving down the street. It's a show of force. Coming from the Mount of Olives, on the other hand, Jesus enters Jerusalem not only from the opposite direction, But in the opposite manner, Jesus, the suffering servant, is is riding not a war horse, but a donkey, and not even a full-grown donkey at that. In Jewish culture, the the donkey was a beast of burden, but it was also a symbol of of Jewish royalty and peace. Jewish rabbis also rode on donkeys. That, That Jesus... ...doesn't ride a war horse, but that he rides this donkey of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9... Shows, ...shows him to be a king, for sure. But a king who doesn't conquer in the way that the world thinks that a person of power would conquer. You see, Pilate's grand entrance, it's a show of force to intimidate would-be revolutionaries... Jesus' grand entrance is a show of meekness. That's a deep, deep expression of, of his mission and his work. He, he's the king who wields peace, not power as, as you and I know it. Well, as you and I, as, as we approach interactions with one another and, and the culture around us, and, and we all make grand entrances somewhere, maybe not so grand, but all of us are, if, I mean, in my vanity, I'm a vain person. I'm, I'm conscious of how people perceive me. Quick side note, my wife was giving me a haircut the other day, and, and I was trying to give her pointers on, you know, maybe how it should turn out. And she said, you know, the difference between you and me is... Um, You know, I don't really care if you come back as my customer. So, um, but I, you know, she does a great job and I'm grateful. So, and that's one thing I love about my wife, but all that to say, I digress. But as you and I approach our interactions with, with one another, um, and we make these little entrances into our spheres of influence I I think it's important that we stop to ask ourselves, how am I trying to wield my power and influence in this situation? Not that wielding influence is wrong as, as Christians were salt and light, but Jesus has been telling a story of an upside down kingdom and what he expects of his followers. And he's saying, yes, you have a, Calling on your character. You have a calling to be an influence in the world, but, but think about how you do it and look to me, right? What, what are you and I trying to control in every interaction that we have? What scripts do you and I follow? Because these scripts in our lives and how we've learned to interact with people take root. I'll come back to that in a moment. So at the beginning of this Holy Week, we see that, that Jesus and Pilate, are, they're at the head of two very different parades. Which again should cause us to ask the question, which parade are we marching in? Who, who is our king? Who's the king that we follow? Are we in the parade that makes a show of force or the parade that heralds the way of peace? Are we in the way of conquest or are we in the way of contrast that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and all of the rest of his teachings in Matthew's gospel and all the gospels are calling us to follow? Like Jesus, are are we able to surrender our own self-interest to lay down our power and to make a kingdom impression? in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. I was pointed by listening to someone else talking about a completely different topic to a a sermon illustration that connects with me. Um, For almost 30 years after the surrender of Japan in World War II, hundreds of members of the Imperial Japanese Army refused to surrender. And for 30 years, waged a campaign of of harassing allied uh, Allied occupation uh, forces throughout the Pacific. And engaged in in deadly skirmishes with the local populace around these over 20 locations. And one of the last holdouts was a a Japanese army lieutenant by the name of, of Hiro Onoda. And Anoda had become so deeply acculturated to the mindset of war. He'd become so habituated in waging conflict, fighting for the cause and defending himself that he no longer possessed an imagination that could lead him differently. And in spite of repeated efforts, people knew that where he existed on this island, they dropped leaflets, they made announcements, they sent people out to find him. In spite of all of this, he refused to surrender. And after about 30 years, a journalist, a young journalist, finally made it his mission to go find him in the jungle in the Philippines, and he and he encounters him, and he he's not hostile looking, and so Anota entertains him if you will but Anoda still refuses to surrender 30 years after the war it takes the very commander who gave Hanoda his last order to be flown to the Philippines to confront him and issue him another order to surrender and in 1974 lieutenant Anoda in his tattered uniform and in his perfectly maintained rifle and all his ammunition presents his weapons And he surrenders. You see, this is a human being who feels like he has to fight for what he believes in. He doesn't know any differently. And I think to some degree, you and I who've been acculturated to to fight for what's right and what we believe in and what is good, think oftentimes that that's the way to achieve kingdom aims and purposes. And what Jesus shows us is, is, is that's not his way. Throughout his earthly ministry, we, we see a Jesus who doesn't feel like he has to protect the mission of God. He sets his face toward Jerusalem and he enters as the king of kings as he is, but he does so with with such trust in the reign of God that he doesn't think he has to protect himself from outsiders. In fact, he knows that his very mission is to lay down his very life to accomplish the purpose for which God put him on this earth. You see, when you and I feel so deeply that we have to defend and protect the movement... As it were, that we have to defend Jesus and His mission. We, we risk living them out in such a way that we are creating more enmity and strife than we are freedom and rest. And so where might you and I be might like these devoted holdouts of the Imperial Japanese army beholden in our case to a perhaps misshapen ideology or unwilling to lay down what little worldly power you and I in this little church possess and acting when we do withhold that power as if the kingdom of heaven is neither at hand and nor are we fully or eternally secure in the reign of Christ. Like Christ, can we confidently, in spite of our fears, lay them aside, take leave of our insecurities and our selfish ambitions and enter into the kingdom character in life that he's called us to? Those are the orders he's given us. Those are the orders that we should cling to. If anyone would follow me, take up your cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me. Those are our orders. You see, Jesus lived this life aimed toward Jerusalem. A life that was marked by self-denial and an onward movement toward a death that would produce freedom and life. When Christ entered Jerusalem, he, he entered with a war aim, no less, but a war aim of negotiating the peace signing the armistice, to, to rend into the curtain which separated God and man, to break down the dividing wall of hostility that, that separates us from one another. And he entered with the aim that, that we would live out for us what it means to surrender to ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Christ is the victor. He reigns victorious over sin and death. The fullness of the kingdom of God, his his very first words of his preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet, so often we continue to act as if it's not. Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem. And you and I cannot know the real Jesus without following him there. Seeing him on the cross and seeing him emerge from the empty tomb. Well, I've been thinking about death a little more in the past nine months. Particularly the last three, I've spent a lot of time in an infusion room at at University of Texas Southwestern. Um, As most of you know I've had a um, blood cancer diagnosis since my children were born. Uh, it's not anything I feel. It's all a game in my head and evident in the laboratory numbers. But, um, but it's caused me to confront my own frailty and my own view of, of what does it mean to face death? And I don't have the answers, uh, but, but one thing that has stood out to me, and let me just say, too, I don't feel like my position is really any more precarious than any other person sitting in these pews. The leading cause of death in America are things like auto accidents and heart disease. Uh, we all drove here, and I'm the guy who bought donuts for the fellowship hour, so I'm trying to usher as many of you out of earthly existence uh, before me. But all that to say that it's it's forced me to um, realize that I may not live as long as I thought I would, and I think many of us spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid death or the idea of death, physical death no less. Um, but what has struck me in something I read by Randy Alcorn in a book he wrote, um, you know, if God is good, it's it's a whole treatise on human suffering. But he makes this point that that we are constantly looking at our life in this world, in this life, which scripture tells us is but a breath. And he makes the point that, that we are so focused on a little dot on the paper. Yet our real life is this line that stretches out in to perpetuity. And I'm learning that. I can lay down my fears about my own death. My fears of that I hold for the future of my family. The fear that I have about things I won't accomplish. Things that I may not get to witness. When I focus not on that dot, but on that line. And Jesus, as he's entered Jerusalem has told us all throughout Matthew's gospel, leading up to this point, focus on the line, not on the dot. In the second chapter of Matthew, while he's recounting this this story of the epiphany, Matthew makes a a small addition to this list of gifts that Gentiles will bring, that we we find this list of gifts in in Isaiah chapter sixty. It mentions gold and frankincense, among other things that the Gentiles will bring into Jerusalem to celebrate the king. But Matthew tells us that besides gold and frankincense, the Magi also bring myrrh. Now, you and I probably don't have myrrh at home. Um, I don't look for it in the grocery store. But, but myrrh was used to anoint dead bodies before they were entombed or buried. And to understand, I think the significance of this, and you and I probably just gloss over it because we've just heard gold and frankincense and myrrh most of our Christian life. But, but imagine if you're at a see for this newborn baby, and somebody presents to the family a, a bottle of embalming fluid. What what would what would you think? And Matthew is reminding us that if, if we accept Jesus as the Messiah, then then we are also accepting our responsibility to suffer and to die with him. And so, as we come back to the triumphal entry, I, we know that I can tell you, I am confident that Jesus did not enter Jerusalem in his grand entrance to make a scene and, and to put it in the face of Pontius Pilate and the worldly powers. Jesus knew he was going to face a confrontation. But that wasn't what he was trying to provoke. Verse 12 and 13, it says, Jesus, after he enters Jerusalem, where does he go? He enters the temple. Jesus' purpose was not to march on the capital to incite a violent uprising of Jews who longed to be free of their Roman oppressors, Jesus, coming to Jerusalem, was asserting his authority over the temple. The temple, not only as the physical place that was the center of Israelite worship, but the temple that is you and me, the temple of the living God who lives in the hearts of humans. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. And that's what Jesus wants to do with you and I. He wants us to follow him to Jerusalem. To confront our hearts and how worldly power is at work in us. How we're trying to wield our power, not the power of Jesus Jesus tells us that facing and embracing death, a death to our self-interest is the path to life. And the final verse of our passage tells us the purpose for which Jesus came. He says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When we allow Christ to reign over our hearts. The result is healing. The true freedom that God has created for us is the freedom to lay down our lives for one another and even our enemies, as Matthew has taught us already. And so my only application for this morning, this Palm Sunday, is 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 later in the service we'll have a chance to process forward and partake of the table. And, and, and as you come forward to lay down your palm, let it be this physical enactment of, of laying down your self-interest and selfish ambitions. And let it be a renewal of your own grand entrance into the kingdom character and the manner of life that Christ is calling us to. Christ set his face toward Jerusalem. Christ set his mind. On going to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission. Let us set our minds on following Christ. To Jerusalem. And one day we'll either be participants in or witnesses to the finale. Of Christ's grand entrances, his second coming, and our life will will transform from that fragile dot filled with the trials of this life to the solid line which stretches on to infinity, where we'll live the life of abundance and rest and unveiled intimacy with God and his people in the restored temple of his good creation. Would you pray with me? Almighty and everlasting God, in in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to give us the example of his great humility and to suffer death upon the cross. Mercifully grant God that we, with courage and conviction, would invite Jesus into every aspect of our inner lives and journey faithfully and resolutely toward our own Jerusalems. Give us both the wisdom and the resolve to face death and embrace the resurrection as the path to a life of abundance and rest and lead us to the laying down of the palm branches of our own self-interest that we may more fully know the real Jesus who hung on the cross and came out of the tomb and who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen.